Welcome back to the Evolving Wellness Podcast. My name is Sarah, and today's guest is actually a returning guest, Rob Jacobs. I got so much great feedback from our last episode all about quantum exercise that I decided to have him back on to talk in depth about more of these topics. When it comes to what is the best time of day for you to exercise, what type of exercise is best for fat loss, what type of exercise is best for someone who is struggling with hormonal imbalances, so many of those questions that we got after the last episode that we wanted to do another one. And by popular demand, Rob and I have actually just come out with a course, Quantum Exercise, where we're going to dive into all the topics we talk about in today's show. And there's also a 12-week exercise program within that as well. Now, if you get the program within the first 30 days of when we release the program, which if you're listening to this live, when it does come out on June 28th, So between June 28th um, for the month of July, you can get a discount for buying the course early and you'll have access to four Zoom meetings with Rob and I where you can have your questions answered live. So make sure you check that out. It's gonna be linked on the show notes. I think this is a course that a lot of coaches should take as well, (laughs) should take. I highly recommend it if you're a coach, if you're working with people in this exercise or even nutrition arena to highly, highly consider this course. So I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Before we jump into it, I did want to thank a couple sponsors very quickly. The first one is Viva Rays. They are my source for protecting my circadian rhythms. Now, one of the things that Rob and I mentioned in this episode is people who have to work out super early in the morning before the sun comes up. So if this is you, you're definitely going to want to grab a pair of those Viva Rays circadian glasses to protect your circadian rhythms in the gym. My code there is Yogi and the link is down in the show show notes for you. Second sponsor is Upgraded Formulas. This is my go-to source for understanding the mineral balance within my body. Most of us do have a mineral imbalance and just guessing and supplementing with random things doesn't always help and can sometimes cause more harm than good. So check out Upgraded Formulas. Use my code YOGI12 or YOGI if you've already used that one before and go ahead and check out their hair tissue mineral analysis with a consultation. All right, let's go ahead and jump into today's episode with Rob. I think you're going to enjoy it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Super excited to have a repeat guest here, Rob Jacobs. We are going to talk more about circadian health, exercise, hormones, all the things. So Rob, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great. Yeah, it's we Rob and I have actually been hanging out a little bit lately because we just created a quantum exercise course after our last episode. We had so many people reach out and just say, Hey, if you guys did a course about exercise, I would so take it. So as of the day I re- release this episode, we're going to have that course available to you. So make sure you head down to the show notes. And we're going to talk a little bit in this episode about some of the things that we put in the course that we think are missing from most exercise courses and just nutrition and exercise programs in general. But Rob, if you wouldn't mind just reintroducing yourself to my audience, telling everyone a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I've been in the strength and conditioning field since the uh, late nineties. So I've been coaching over 20 years now. I've had uh, a few athletes, uh, females in particular in the Olympics, I had one in Rio and qualifying in Tokyo. I've actually got a, uh, uh, a skeleton athlete right now that I'm working with for team Canada. So we've got uh, a lot of experience with, you know, higher level elite level athletes. And one of the things I think that makes that philosophy and, and the philosophy of, of my mentor, Charles Poliquin, that makes that philosophy so great is that we've taken, you know, we take the concepts that you apply to the elite of the elite, and you can use those concepts and that philosophy with your everyday, you know, non-athletic you know, it, person or individual. And it's those little things that, that are so important for the, you know, for the elite that can really make a massive difference in, in the life and the training of, uh, of your average everyday person. So I've got a lot of experience there with, with the elite athletes. I've coached personally coached track and field as a skills coach. So I was, I was a, a hurdles coach and a jumps coach. And I think one of my, my most proud accomplishments is that I've gotten, uh, I think it's over 35 Division One scholarships now for for high school athletes who I only count people I've trained for at least three years. 
you know, you, you hear a lot of people yeah. brag about, about some of their accomplishments is like you coached that kid for like six weeks as a senior, didn't really do that much for him. So I only count the ones that I've trained for the majority of their careers. And to me, that's a big deal. And those range from softball, baseball, basketball, football, track and field, national champions in track and field. And uh, I've worked with a ton of MMA and grappling, you know, mixed martial arts types of athletes. So ton of experience with that. And uh, over the last several years, really become interested in the circadian aspect of, you know, not only health, but also as more and more research comes out, how that actually impacts how and when we should exercise and the fuel sources we use based on how and when we exercise and, and all those sorts of things. So really trying to become the, you know, have the most holistic approach and bring the fact how specific and advanced elite training can be and bring that to, you know, the average everyday person who, who really can benefit a, a tremendous amount from those philosophies. Yeah. And that's what I was trying to pull out of you for this course is like, <laughs> how do we make, I mean, this amazing level of expertise. You didn't even mention that before uh, Paula Quinn passed away, he named you one of his top 100 coaches in the world, which is like huge, amazing. So Rob really knows what he's talking about, but how do we make this understandable to you know, the, the everyday person who just really wants to exercise? They want to do this in a way that improves longevity, improves strength, helps them maximize fat loss and the best time of day, all of that stuff. So that's what we've tried to do in the course. And maybe we'll try to talk about some of those things in this conversation also. Yeah. You know, I think one of the, the easiest ways to sort of explain, you know, the, the strength coaches perspective to not only quantum, you know, exercise or whatever we want to call it is it's really the biggest difference is, is training versus exercise. So you know, the, most gyms and, and even some personal trainers uh, I've seen just kind of scribble a, a workout on a whiteboard that day with no forethought or, you know, any other considerations. And, you know, there's nothing really wrong with that if that's what you want. Like, and to me, that's the difference between exercise and training. And, and what this course is really concentrating on is the training side of all of this. Whereas, you know, we, we're going to set an objective and how to get from point A to point B as fast and efficiently as possible. And that, you know, that's really the difference between training and exercise. And there's so many, you know, referred to them as gen pop clients who, you know, aren't athletes, don't have any specific athletic goals. That's the difference that you can make for someone with training versus exercise. You know, mm -hmm. they, even if you don't really have a specific reason other than looking good naked or your shoulder hurts and you want that to stop, signing and implementing a plan and a strategy to get from point A to point B, you know, multiple times in a year ongoing from now until you want to stop training. There, there's no reason you can't continuously make great progress. And it's that lack of planning and preparation that causes most people to not be successful when they work with a trainer or a coach. Yeah. And I hope that some coaches end up taking this program also, because I think that there, I've had a lot of trainers. I did work with Rob back in, gosh, it was 2017 or 2018. It's been a few years, but I've had a lot of trainers over the years being in as a yoga teacher and kind of working more in that realm, I would always work in different gyms. And so every time I'd work in a gym, I'd always have a trainer and try to do some strength training along with it. So I've had a lot of coaches and I've had coaches that are just like, you know, you can tell they just scribbled a bunch of stuff down on the pad before you came, or maybe they didn't even have a plan at all. And it's just like, <laughs> let's just see how exhausted we can make her and how sweaty we can make her. And that's going to be a workout, but I never really made progress, right? I never felt like there was a plan for me to get stronger and get the improvements that I wanted to get. Yeah, I could burn calories and be in a pool of sweat, but like, what's actually the point of that? So maybe we could talk a little bit first about why our program and why the way that you teach isn't like heavily based around aerobics and doing a bunch of cardio, that sort of thing. Yeah. So the, you know, the, there's a few really key points with utilizing resistance training or weightlifting for, for fat loss and for, you know, conditioning. And, you know, a lot of those are, you get some hormonal response from hard weightlifting that you don't get from steady state cardio or, you know, what you would traditionally call aerobics. And then the other, you know, benefits are that lifting weights really kills tons of birds with one stone. You know, you, one of the biggest things is that you will get stronger lifting weights for fat loss, sort of as a byproduct of how you lift weights for fat loss. 
And that's a, that's something I think that, that the strength coach's perspective can be really beneficial on is that, you know, when, when I have a, an athlete that needs to get lean, I can't allow them to get weaker at the same time, right? That's a, that's going to be a huge detriment to their performance. And in fact, if I can get them stronger and faster while getting them leaner, they're going to get paid more and get bigger contracts and perform better. And I look better and they look better, right? So that's a big component to it. Whereas again, if, if you're just going for a run, once you stop running, the benefits are done. And it's called cardio for a reason. It is primarily cardiovascular benefits. There's really no other systemic benefits to it. Whereas if we're looking at weightlifting, you know, there's a head to toe benefit that is vastly superior when your objective is fat loss and, and other, you know, aspects, right? There's, we know now there's a lot of really good research that says being stronger will help you live longer because when elderly people or, you know, fall, they fall because they're not strong enough and fast enough to stop themselves from falling for the most part, right? You, when you get off balance, if you're strong and fast, like there's a reason that, you know, people like you and I don't fall and break our hips because we're strong enough to prevent it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've got enough, you know, cushion or muscle mass to help prevent it if we do fall. But with the elderly and, and as you get older and weaker, that we see that as a big, big thing big issue, right? And and we're not talking about being able to bench press five times your body weight with these with this type of strength training, right? The, the strength training they're looking at in these studies is oftentimes as simple as grip training and standing up out of a chair, you know, or, you know, holding a five pound weight standing up out of a chair. So it's as simple as getting stronger, not so much being super strong. And the longevity, you know, benefits are pretty substantial. And, and it's important that that doesn't get lost in, you know, being too big and too strong where it's actually detrimental to longevity. But if you can be strong enough and, and lean enough to a certain degree, right? We're not talking about extremes here, just healthy, healthily lean because you're active. There's tremendous benefits to that. And you know, we're all limited on how much time we can spend exercising, especially Mm -hmm. if you're a parent, you know, or an executive, or if you work two or three jobs, you know, if you only have 15 or 20 minutes a day to exercise, you can, you can really tick a ton of boxes by doing that exercise in the weight room. And one of the, one of the sayings that's super popular in, you know, in Charles's uh, circles is that strength is the mother of all qualities. And for the most part, it really is. We're talking about things like this because there is, there's no aspect of movement and and physicality or daily life that being stronger doesn't improve. And again, we're, we're talking relative to that, right? It's, it's not, I don't need a five times body weight back squat to be stronger. So, you know, that that's all we're talking about. If you get stronger, lighter weights are easy. If you get stronger, your child is easier to pick up. You know, if you get stronger, your dog is easier to walk. If it's a big dog, groceries are easier to carry. You know, you're harder to kill because you can move faster. There's, you know, there's a whole host of benefits to just being a stronger, you know, more apt physical representation of your current self. And that's, that's really the biggest benefit to, you know, the, again, the strength coaches approach to being leaner and stronger. Yeah. And I think most of my audience that um, I can't assume everything for them, but (laughs) from a lot of the feedback I get from people and just keep talking to people every day, I think they just want to feel good. And, you know, when you're strong, you're able to get around, you're able to participate in life and do things that feels good. And so that's something that I've never been able to accomplish by getting on the elliptical machine, right? And just doing this endless kind of cardio thing that really comes from strength training. Um, And I know I have a lot of people that also are interested in weight loss. So maybe we could just hit on why. Again, you're not a huge fan of like endless aerobics for for weight loss. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the simplest things to touch on with with aerobics is or compared to weightlifting is that aerobics make you a much more efficient user of your fuel. So, for example, if we're if we're looking purely at like calorie burn and and effort, if the the first time you exercise, you go for say a 30-minute run or jog, and let's just say you burned a hundred calories. From that point on, to burn the same 100 calories, you have to run, if you're not changing your pace, which becomes a bit, becomes a different type of exercise at that point, right? Aerobics is a, you know, generally a zone. So from that point on, to burn that same 100 calories, you have to then exercise longer and longer and longer or change your pace. And now you're really starting to get out of aerobics at that point, right? So that's the, that's kind of the biggest aspect. And, and granted, that's a, that can be a positive 
yield on, on that exercise. However, if I've only got 20 to 30 minutes every day, there are so many variables that can be changed with resistance training that you can make tiny changes just in the, the speed of a movement and a five second change in your rest interval can yield a completely different change or a completely different stimulus, which will result in a different change. So that I think is the biggest downfall to aerobics is that they make you so efficient. It becomes much more time consuming to then, you know, accomplish your goal. Cause if you want to push that hundred calories up, that 30 minute run now has to be 45. It now has to be 60. It now has to be 90 minutes to get that same calorie burn without changing your, your effort level or pace or, you know, all that stuff. Whereas weights, you can train for a half hour and change a ton of stuff every day and still get the job done because basically weights make you a gas guzzler. The way you draw fuel for or utilize fuel for hard effort resistance training, you are a gas guzzler. You consume a ton of fuel and put out a ton of exhaust, which is what makes it a bit more efficient or, or a lot more efficient. And one of the one of the ways that weights kind of got demonized was some studies in the, I believe it was the early 80s, where they looked at fuel sources and the fuel source from resistance training during resistance training was carbohydrates. And the fuel source during aerobics was fat. And so everybody sort of just assumed then that, well, weights is terrible for fat loss because it doesn't utilize fat as a fuel. And so again, that got, everything got confused and sort of, you know, butchered from there and, and weights were deemed not good for fat loss. Turns out a few years later, we learned that your metabolism, metabolic rate, and, and the amount of fat you burn post-exercise lasts two to three days, depending on the scenario, longer than aerobics or steady state cardio can last. You know, basically, if you go for a run, when you stop running, you're essentially getting diminishing results the moment you stop your exercise. Whereas weightlifting, again, kind of got a bad rap, whereas it didn't utilize a ton of fat and some of these other things during the weightlifting activity. 24, 48, 72 hours later, it was actually much higher post weightlifting than it is post cardio or, or you know steady state exercise. So again, that's another thing that makes weights much more advantageous. And then we've got hormonal reactions that we can elicit from weightlifting that we can't elicit from steady state you know cardiovascular exercise. And going one step beyond that, there's a tremendous orthopedic component where you know if you go for a 30 minute run. How many steps are you getting in that 30 minute run? Yeah. Uh, let's say it's a thousand, right? If you've got any sort of gait issue, or if you strike the ground improperly with your foot, or if you wear your cell phone on your hip, or if you run with a water bottle attached to your hand and there's anything off with how you're moving, that is a massive amount of continuous repetitions and a faulty movement pattern that can and almost always does lead to discomfort and knee aches and, and all these sorts of things. So you're, I mean, honestly, you're better off walking for 20 to 30 minutes than you are jogging or running for 20 to 30 minutes, unless you are a hundred percent sure that you're not going to get aches and pains from that. And the, the beauty of weightlifting is that not only can we use exercise to be corrective rather than using corrective exercises, we can fix problems and still train hard at the exact same time so that you can do your walks or go for a run if you like, or play with your kids if you like, and not experience those same orthopedic issues and, and certainly not make them worse. Now, obviously, you know, your shoulder can hurt because you benched in high school just terribly wrong. But when you do things properly, your joint integrity improves, your flexibility improves. You know, one of the things we get from Charles is, is how to utilize full range of motion in exercise to improve and increase your your joint integrity and your flexibility right if if you can't squat through a full range of motion with proper technique there's flexibility limitations there that make you vulnerable to injuries when you are picking up something from the ground or you know you have to pick up your kid quickly because they're about to stick their you know paperclip in a light socket or whatever it is right you know weightlifting can be used to correct all of those dysfunctions and imbalances where again is running and and aerobics makes all of that worse if there's a, a problem there to begin with. Got it. Yeah. I think that's the trap a lot of people fall into is just seeing how many steps they can get in the day. And I think that can be helpful. I mean, you've got your non-exercise activity thermogenesis that can account for helping you lose weight if you need to lose the weight, but it's really comes down to this whole idea of the energy management system of the body, which 
we talk a lot, both a lot about um, on our pages and mitochondrial health. You know, that's, we kind of had not talked for a few years and then reconnected after I did the podcast with Dr. Jack Cruz. And you were like, oh, I'm, you know, working with Dr. Jack Cruz, studying, learning, and, and you had kind of gotten into quantum biology and circadian biology. And that's what reconnected us after not speaking for a few years. And so, yeah, here we are. But that's something that you and I both harp on is that, you know, you can eat perfect food, which we'll talk about nutrients, nutrient timing, all that. And we recommend eating healthy, good seasonal local food, but you can kind of check off all those boxes. And if your mitochondrial function is not optimal because you're not really, you don't have good circadian health, you're just basically living a lifestyle where you're not minding your mitochondria. That's that energy management system of the body. And so weight training can help with the energy management system of the body, right? So you don't have to worry about taking 30,000 steps in a day to not gain weight or to lose the weight, right? Which I see so many people doing these days. Yeah. So, so weight training, resistance training, you know, all that stuff can, there's essentially two, two main responses with, with mitochondria or with mitochondrial biogenesis. You know, we don't actually magically grow new mitochondria. We repair what's there or so we have fission and fusion, right? And different types of training, whether it be uh, conditioning, right, metabolic style or aerobics versus intense sprints or, you know, sprinting, sprinting equivalent to weightlifting, which would be high intensity training. You know, each one of those gets a different response of fusion versus fission. And, you know, we can directly address any mitochondrial adaptation that needs to be had with resistance training, where it becomes another, you know, a good bit more challenging to do that if I'm only relying on steady state aerobics, because again, that's a very, you know, there's a, there's a decent range of heart rates, but that's a very narrow, you know, very narrow lane that you sort of have to stay in. Whereas again, with weightlifting, I can accomplish this, 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 and this, you know, again, that you, that you can't really accomplish with, uh, with aerobics or steady state cardio. So the coming back to the weights is that it's always more, it's more efficient, more efficient for your time, more efficient for your body and, you know, being stronger stronger has rarely not been a benefit to to anyone, you know? Agree. Totally agree. And the thing that I get asked a lot about with exercise, because I think, and I know we touched on this a little bit in the last episode that we did, so many people are scared of uh, cortisol or they've got maybe adrenal issues, they're burned out, they're struggling with their hormones just in general. And I think they've almost been scared to exercise. So Maybe we can bust a few myths around that and and give some people direction when it comes to cortisol and, and exercise and hormones. Yeah. So, you know, we get into specifics in the course mm-hmm. about how to train with, with certain qualities going on. So, you know, if, if we're looking at, at, which is part of an assessment that we'll do for, for program design, if, if you come as a client, right, if you're, if you fall into certain categories, uh, uh, you know, over 50 or over 40, over 60, you're overstressed. You've got a very poorly functioning immune system. You know, we can, and we can look at lab markers for those. We can look at questionnaires for those types of things. There are certain styles of training that will allow you to recover much easier from that training. And then there are certain styles of training that you probably should never touch until all of that is resolved because it's only going to make you worse. And so, you know, when we're looking at those types of things, when you're stressed and have poor recovery capabilities, Heavier weights with lower repetitions become one of the most challenging things to recover from. When you're you know, super stressed, you can utilize weights for metabolic work, you know, the types of training that stimulate a lot of waste product and fatigue substrates and basically things that sort of uh, sort of trigger the pump, right, is, is kind of an easy way or the burn, right, if you don't like pump. Pump's great for guys. The burn might be a little more uh, relatable for, for females. So stimulating that type of response, you have different limiting factors for pushing training harder, right? Uh, if, I'm, if I'm doing pure strength training for, for raw strength and I want to be as strong as possible, there's as much of a nervous system component to that as there is a muscular system. And in fact, you could have probably argue that there's a greater nervous system component to that than there is a muscular system component because without the nervous system driving that efficiency, you're not actually going to get stronger. Whereas with some of these other modalities that where all we're doing is chasing the pump and trying to elicit a horm- the hormonal response that follows the burn and the pump that's being been achieved, 
at that point, it's far less of a nervous system component. And that's where we're getting into, you know, if you're overstressed or if, if you're sick and you really stress your nervous system, you've got, you're competing for resources there. You know, whereas if I'm, if I'm just training to stimulate, to chase the burn or chase the pump to be metabolic, which I can do with heavy weights also and low repetitions, but this is where our variables come into play. It becomes much easier to recover. So if we look at, uh, you know, we talked a lot about the the neurotransmitter dominance and some of those things that, that Charles made popular. So for, if, if we take a shot putter, for example, versus a 1600 meter runner uh, or for athletes, right? Those are two very different body types. Those are two probably very different personalities. And those two types of sports respond very differently to training. Now I can take a shot putter who responds to, let's say anything below six to eight reps, right? That's, that's their wheelhouse. So you can take that person because that's more of how I respond to training as well. And by manipulating their rest interval, you can take that extremely low rep range and turn that higher weight, lower rep range work into cardiovascular work mm-hmm. you know, by using strongman type of movements, really heavy carries or you know, heavy, heavy whatever. But by modulating the rest interval, you're still allowing that person who thrives on weight to be heavy to lift in that lower rep range, heavy weight range. But by cutting that rest interval, it's far less of a nervous system component now. And so that's how we can start to manipulate these things. And by, by manipulating the rest, the reps, the tempo, all these variables that we talk about in the course and, and why, why that training aspect versus exercise is so important because you can manipulate each one of these variables in very subtle ways over the course of 12 weeks, 24 weeks, three years, right? When, I, when I'm training some of the Olympians, it's a four-year Olympic cycle sometimes. So it becomes very important to track those variables to know how to play with them to elicit continuous progress without ever hitting a plateau. So we look at those variables, right? The higher repetition or honestly, not even the repetition range, but the rest interval really helps mm-hmm. dictate that hormonal response or even the training goal because five sets of five with three to four or five minutes of rest is a very different training result than five sets of five with 40 seconds of rest, right? But that five rep range still allows the person who thrives on lifting something hard and heavy for not a ton of reps because they're not good at that. They can still get a fat loss effect and a metabolic effect with that style of training, but it doesn't require that low reps, that heavy weight. All that requires is your best effort. And that's, where the whole you know strength coach type of philosophy comes in is that every set should be your best effort. Mm. And then how do we getting your best effort out of every set? How do we set up your program to allow you to train your best, perform your best, and still reach your goal without you know beating the crap out of you, right? Because if I have an athlete and I train them in such a way they have to miss two weeks or a week because either an injury or uh, or they get sick because they're not recovering or, you know, a whole, whatever the case may be, that is a tremendous disservice to that athlete. And I don't think, you know, that your, your average like weekend warrior or somebody who just likes exercise thinks about it that way is because it can be done and then that's how it should be done. And that's how, you know, like next level personal trainers get better results in their competition down the street. I love it. And, you know, I guess kind of talking about this everyday person that's really just wanting to feel better, maximize basically their life. (laughs) A big question I get is when is the best time of day to work out? Because I've got people really interested in circadian rhythms and circadian health. And I know this is something we dive into in more depth in the course, but when we're talking about circadian rhythms and athletic performance, just for the everyday person, what, what's your opinion on that? So we know from, from looking at the research that there are certain times of day that are probably the best time of day to train a certain way. Now, like we just discussed, you can train certain ways to reach all sorts of objectives, right? So if we look at um, precision performance movements, like a, a strength or power athlete, like a shot putter who has to do Olympic weightlifting exercises or hard, heavy squats and, and very nervous system dominant training that requires you know, very precise movements, or you're either not going to get better or you may get hurt. Those type, that type of training we know is best between, you know, one and five to two and five o'clock in the afternoon, because that's when the brain is really, that's when your nervous system and your body is its most coordinated. But with other styles of training, we know that 
you can generally, or because of how you respond to training at certain times of day, you know, the morning is a little bit better for metabolic, shorter rest, fat loss style training. Whereas the evening is a little bit better to chase the, the burn or chase the pump to really damage the muscle tissue and try to get benefit from exhausting the muscle. Whereas, you know, again, if we look at that five sets of five, for example, if I do five sets of five in the morning with 30 to 40 seconds of rest, that's going to fatigue my muscles, but it's going to fatigue my, my energy system or my cardiovascular system more than, than the muscle fatigue because of the lack of recovery. Whereas in the evening, I probably want to do more than five repetitions still with a short rest, but chase the muscular fatiguing being the limiting factor, as opposed to just being exhausted every set. And, you know, panting and breathing hard is a substantial element to fat loss. You know, if you're not huffing and puffing and getting rid of CO2 and utilizing the, you know, your fuel sources, right? That's a good marker for, for getting leaner. If, if you're not huffing and puffing, it's probably not getting you leaner. So we know we have, you know, we have those components, which are great if you could do whatever you wanted in your day, you know, but so many people are are limited to either having to exercise before work, having to exercise at lunch, or having to exercise after work. And if that's the case, then you know, you want to sort of make your training fit the time of day and the fuel source that training at that time of day demands. And and of course, we'll we get into the specifics of that, right? What fuel sources you use and and how to train. That's kind of the, the purpose of the course is that so you are armed with the information to take this workout that you're given and maybe know how to manipulate that if you train in the morning or in the evening. So it can definitely be done and it can be done with very similar frameworks. But if you're, you know, if you're if you never time your rest interval, if you never have a tempo to the speed of your repetitions, you never know how long your set takes. So if you're never timing your rest, you never know how long your rest takes. And the the work to rest timing ratio is a huge component into that training in the morning or training in the evening component. And if I'm going to fatigue the muscular system or the nervous system, or if I'm just going from fat loss through global fatigue, actually, I don't really want to get a pump because that's more local and that's less fatiguing than systemic pump or uh, sy- systemic uh, uh, exercise. So like a lower, lower and upper body pairings versus I'm going to train chest and back in the evening type of thing. What about people who, because I get this a lot, they can only work out at five o'clock in the morning. What do you have to say to those people? And I mean, it's not ideal, but yeah, kind it's, of, yeah. it's not ideal, but you know, again, you have to, there's several, several ways to look at this. And I, I've had some of these discussions with, I have a client who has to wake up at four, you know, and so we had to, we had to have a discussion of, all right, let's, well, let's look at your goals. What are you, what's your objective right now? If you are, if your objective is to get stronger, and, and this again is where we kind of have to look at things a bit more like you're an athlete with a, with an end date, right? If I have an athlete who has a competition in six months, I'm going to do everything as optimally as I can. But if I have to do things, you know, slightly askew of optimal timing, to, to get results, then we're going to do that, right? Because, you know, it's, it's weird. I was just talking about this the other day on a, on another podcast. It's like, if I, a lot of research we have, like, okay, for example, someone trying to gain weight, a very popular thing in our field is to have a casein protein shake right before bed. Mm -hmm. Now we know from the quantum side of things, the long-term effects of this are not good at all. Nope. However, when you look at 12 week studies or 12 week transformations like uh, Hugh Jackman, for example, when he was training for Wolverine was shredded and got more shredded every movie. Right. And one of the things he would do to put on muscle mass was wake up at three or four in the morning, down a protein shake, and then go back to sleep because it becomes super important to change your physique. And so in that manner, you have to get you know protein in, you have to get all these things in, in order to build the mass that you require. So you know, you, you have to determine what concessions you're willing to make for a finite amount of time, because hopefully we're all going to retire at some point. And, you know, waking up before the sunrise to exercise, I'm not going to have to do that forever because I'll be able to wake up at, you know, 9.15 or 8.45 when the sun rises, go outside, possibly exercise outdoors, you know, after I have my breakfast and all that sort of thing. So it, you know, you have to sort of figure out, is it, is it more important to you to, to get this exercise in right now to hit a certain goal, or is it more important to you to, res, you know, to respect the circadian rhythms and, and not try to correct those once you sort of mess them up? 
Because we know, you know, if you wake up at four and eat breakfast under artificial light, that's a really, it's a really sh- shitty outcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's yeah. not a good situation. And right. so, so many people, especially trainers, will wake up at that horrible time of day like that and, and either train on an empty stomach and then eat or, you know, whatever it is, and then go be under the artificial lights of the gym all day. Mm-hmm. So we know that those things are not good outcomes. But if it's don't do anything and do this, well, okay. I mean, if, if that's your goal, if you're, if you're, as Charles used to always talk about priorities, right? Priority means one. You don't have three priorities. There's one, right? You make a list, the top of the list. That's the only thing you focus on. That is your priority because a lot of these things don't, don't line up, right? Optimal performance and optimal health don't always line up at the same time. And really what it can boil down to is oftentimes what is your issue, right? If you, mm-hmm. if you sleep poorly, we need to fix that before getting into any sort of training. And if you're sleeping poorly and getting up at 4 a.m. every day in artificial light might be more beneficial to you in the long term to not exercise for a few weeks and at least get your system back on track and then start training possibly at 5 or 6 a.m. You know, when this, before the sun's up if you have to. So a lot of that can kind of boil down to that mitochondrial fission infusion aspect with determining through a good assessment what's your what's your dysfunction and then setting a goal because you don't always have to wake up and train at 5 a.m. You know, you can train at that time for a little bit and maybe you get a red light unit in your home gym and that helps offset some of the damage, right? There's, there's a lot of stuff we can do because if you, you know, when you listen to some folks, they'll tell you, you shouldn't add any sort of muscle mass in any way, shape or form because you're going to die earlier. Yep. You know, like, ah, I don't think that's right. <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, I mean, like, because I think there's there's such an all or nothing approach to some mm-hmm. of this, right? Like yeah. that that point of view is equating, you know, a bodybuilding massive amount of muscle mass with a 60-year-old being strong enough where they just don't fall so so easily. And break right? their hip. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That is not a detrimental amount of muscle mass. And no. we know it is not. Right. 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 You know, like just because the some of the centenarians are frail and fragile, like, well, no shit. There yeah. are a hundred of you. They're just gonna they're not gonna have a lot of muscle mass. Right. But we know it can help you a little bit to us to a small degree. Yeah. So, you know, that that becomes really hard and that and unfortunately there's not a good answer because you really can't do both. So yeah. like I said, are you you have to kind of determine, well, if you've got a really bad achy back and hip and or a shoulder and some of these orthopedic issues that the only time you can exercise or do physical therapy or do some form of resistance training is in the morning and those are bad issues for you, you will probably be better served to fix those issues in the weight room training at a not great time of day than just suffering through those and potentially having a worse injury. So it's a, like I said, it's not a great answer and I don't like giving that answer, but you know, like, is it more important for you to, to get in the gym and exercise because you just love it and this is the only time? Okay, great. We're going to make the best of a really bad situation by not training you into, you know, into oblivion. And here's how we train at this time of day in this situation and mitigate damage. Right? I like that. Like yeah. wearing blue blockers. We'd all be better off to light candles and never turn on an artificial light. How but, realistic is that? <laughs> yeah, you know, or, if it's yeah. turn on an artificial light or fall my ass down a flight of stairs. Right, exactly. I, I'd rather turn on the artificial light. Right. So, so we've got a lot of those those little components. But again, if you're if you utilize all those little variables, tempos, uh, sets, reps, rest, and proper periodization, you can get a whole lot more from a whole lot less and not have to spend, you know, an hour and a half in the gym. You can you know, I always say, get in, get out, get jacked. Mm-hmm. You know, Charles used to say, if you're in there for more than an hour, you're making friends and not training. Uh, right. There's a lot to that. You know, you don't have to do 50 exercise machines mm-hmm. every single day. Go in and do a couple of things that put you one step closer to whatever your goal is. And once we hit that goal, then we do something else. I like that.
I hope you're enjoying today's episode with Rob Jacobs. Just a quick little reminder, all of Rob's information will be down in the show notes in case you want to follow him or work with him personally. He is a fantastic coach and has so much knowledge. And our quantum exercise course is now available. You can get a pretty good discount on the course as well as get access to those live Zoom meetings. We're gonna have four of them, one each week for the first month that this course is available. So make sure that you head down to the show notes and check out that course. There's gonna be so much great information in there as well as a 12-week exercise program that you can do and get started today on your quantum exercise journey. So thank you again for listening to today's episode and let's jump back into it. You know, I know people are going to ask this just because it's a question I get a ton in my messages. I know Dr. Cruz says work out at 5 p.m., right? Not everyone can do that. And if anyone had like a free open schedule, like ideal schedule, when would be the actual like ideal time to work out if we're trying to build muscle and, you know, trim off some fat? Like we just trying to optimize in that way. Would it be 5 p.m.? Or would you, you know, would you think a different time of day might be a little bit better for that sort of thing? Yeah, I think that two to five window Mm-hmm. is really where where you get the most bang for your buck because if you're you know like i said it, it your nervous system becomes more coordinated so even if your goal is to push a prowler at as fast as you can push it for 10 sets and then leave for fat loss you're going to perform better if you're awake you know if if mm-hmm. you're you know if you're half asleep no matter what you do it's not going to be a great performance so so that time frame really gets you the most bang for your buck no matter what your outcome is but when we look at those other times a day, like, all right, I have to train, you know, at six, seven, eight a.m. Well, here's how your body responds to exercise at that time of day at a sort of a you know a baseline type of exercise. Well, here's how you should exercise at that time of day to get the most out of that timing. And you know, generally it's sort of falls to fat loss, strength, and muscular damage. That's sort of how how the day should flow. I mean, if you can only train at six a.m. Here's how you respond, and we can manipulate every goal to fit that paradigm. We can manipulate every variable to fit this paradigm and get and really get the most out of it. And it allows you to manipulate your fuel source, right? Because we know that that morning versus evening time or, or early active phase versus early rest phase exercise draws upon fats and carbohydrates pretty differently. And, and you know, that allows you, like we know that eating carbohydrates at night is not great for your circadian rhythms. However, in the presence of exercise, some of that gene expression in the, you know, the TCA cycle and those carbohydrate pathways is actually different than it would be if you're not exercising. So the system is, is pretty adaptable to the demands placed upon it, and we can get a little bit more out of it. So if you have to train at 6 p.m., you might be able to have carbohydrates at 6.30 or 7 after your workout, whereas if you train at 6 a.m., carbohydrates after sunset are going to do nothing but you know, not great things. But again, if you're if you're doing that immediately after you train post sunset to a certain degree, you know, if you have certain types of carbs and it's not too soon before bed, you can actually get away with it a little because there, there are people who do get great results training late at night and having carbohydrates after they train. Now, what those results turn out to be 30 years from now, no one knows yet because we simply haven't been studying this stuff that long. But I think it's you know, one of the one of the things I, I was talking to somebody about the other day, and again, this kind of goes back to making some of those concessions, is that if your goal is to to get a certain amount of lean and drop twenty or thirty pounds, set a you know a time frame, twelve weeks or six months or whatever, make the concessions you have to make training at six a.m. versus not training at all, whatever it is, hammer that goal, cross the finish line, and now you have a new set point. Mm. If I can get myself to lose 20 or 30 pounds, and the only way I can add exercise to that is training at 6 a.m. All right, I'm going to cross that finish line, and now I'm going to modulate everything I do. Now I may be able to keep this weight off by simply only doing the leptin reset and and some of the, you know some of the things that you talk about in your programs. Like once you've got a new set point, maintaining that set point with less activity should be easier, especially if then you're you know respecting circadian cycles and, and right. doing those types of things, right? Because when you look at some of these, some of these folks who teach some of these things, right? They, they lost a ton of weight and they aren't that small anymore. No. Right. I mean, like, yeah. okay. Yeah. You did that to yourself on purpose, but 
supposedly. Goal, <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> if if your goal is to to not be that size, or if your goal is to be 20 pounds lighter because you've got a reunion coming up and you want to fit right. into this class or or whatever, right? There, you know, accomplish that goal and and then you're into maintenance, right? Like right. the diets we use for a 12-week transformation. Are, are not the same. It's not long-term. Yeah, exactly. It's not a maintenance. Yeah. And, and then if you look at how the seasons change food availability, carnivore and keto and those types of things aren't probably aren't meant to be 12 months out of the year every year anyway, depending on where you live, right? Right, right. You know, if, if an apple grows in my backyard, I should be okay to eat that. Right. Yep. I love that. And we get deeper into kind of nutrient timing. I actually kind of switched some things up since we did the course because just having carbohydrates in the middle of the day, since I am breastfeeding, I'm not trying to do keto or anything like that right now. Still do the low carb breakfast, have most of the carbs in the middle of the day. And then evening meal is smaller. Don't really have carbs in the, in the evening. I mean, huge difference, huge difference in my energy, sleep, everything, because, you know, you're told have carbs at night, they're going to help you sleep. And it's like, no, that's really bad advice, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, the dichotomies of people's understanding of certain things, you know, at least from the other coaches who teach this stuff to other people, right. it really blows my mind because like we all, I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone tell a client or try to educate someone like the reason you get sleepy after a big Thanksgiving meal, isn't the tryptophan in the turkey. No, no. It's the, the dressing and the sweet potato souffle and all the carbohydrates and the sugar that are, have a way bigger effect on your sleep than the minuscule amount of tryptophan you get from that turkey or the minuscule rise in serotonin you get from the little amount of tryptophan, right? It's a very, it's a very unappreciable increase. And we all know that we all tell people that it's not the turkey, eat the meat, it's the other stuff. So like, then they'll turn around and say the exact opposite to that for, for evening time, you know, right, eat, right. Eat, eat the carbs because they'll help you sleep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> When Michael Scott has sugar at 2 p.m. in the afternoon, he goes nuts for an hour and then crashes, right? When you when you give a an eight-year-old who is metabolically healthy sugar, they instantly have more energy. Right. It, if they're active and if they're using and that's you know, that's what I think one of the important concepts we touched upon in the course is is looking at each macronutrient sort of for, for their evolutionary purpose almost, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The evolutionary purpose of carbohydrates is basically instant energy, quick fuel. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because uh, to their credit, the people who encourage folks to eat carbohydrates at night aren't telling them to eat carbohydrates from pizza and Snickers bars. You know, right. At least for the most part, some people are. But, you know, if you're if your carb source is, is rice and sweet potatoes still like that, that's a source of readily available energy. And that actually. <laughs> You know, like we're, and again, these same people will, will educate you to tell you it's better uh, to sleep in a cold room because mm-hmm. it'll have more fat, but well, not if you have carbohydrates before you go to sleep right. <laughs> that turns off that process. Right. And, you know, so again, it's one of those concessions like, well, does falling asleep faster? Is that your problem? And if so, carbohydrates are very low on the list to help you fall asleep faster. Right. Cause I tried that I'd have carbohydrates and I'd fall asleep at, you know, whatever, a few hours later, but the You're day, awake. yeah, the day I put on blue blockers in absence of any sort of food at dinner, I was ready yep. to fall 30 minutes later. You know, it's like the, the food lever should not be the first lever you try to pull because it's, Great. you're stepping over hundred dollar bills and trying to pick up pennies and nickels here. Yeah. I get a lot of people that say, I can't fall asleep unless I have carbs. And I'm like, well, we need to work on your overall 24 hour cycle and not just the carbs are just a band aid. I hate to say that. It maybe sounds kind of mean, but it's a band aid. If you are having to have carbs to fall asleep, we need to look at your blood sugar balance throughout the day. We're actually supposed to be able to burn glucose and we're supposed to be able to burn fat. We're supposed to be metabolically flexible. I think I have a lot bigger problem of people staying always in sugar burning mode and never going to fat burning mode than people who always stay in fat burning and never come to sugar. Like, I think that that can be problematic for some people and definitely was for me that if you can't ever burn glucose for fuel, but it's a much bigger problem if someone's heavily relying on the carbs for energy source, for sleep, for all of these things definitely means there's metabolic inflexibility and 
we need to work on blood sugar balance throughout a 24 hour period, not just that one little chunk of time. Right. Yeah. And, and like, that's where the timing of when you're having some of these macronutrients get circadian wise or right, through the course mm-hmm. of your day can have a huge impact on, on how you utilize them. Like, I can't tell you how many people have had, you know, hundred to 150 grams of carbs in the, you know, 30 minutes to two hours before they work out, go train and are then in ketosis afterwards. Yep, exactly. Right. Because yep. you have the energy source, you use it all up. Yep. And once that's all used up, you got no other choice but to go For back fat. to other fuel. Exactly. And, you know, so again, that like that goes back to why the carbohydrates at night can be such a problem because when you put those you don't in, get in ketosis in yeah, your sleep like, when you're supposed to. Yeah. yeah we, we all know that the uncoupling proteins are supposed to get hydrogens in so that you, you know, burn fat as a, uh, in the form of heat. Hence the cold room, you burn more heat. However, right. The, I think a lot of people, I guess, don't know this is that when you most people don't know what you just said, (laughs) (laughs) we all know this. I'm like thinking, no, I don't think most people know that's actually a thing at all. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, all right. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's let's break that down a little bit. One of the things that's supposed to happen when you don't have a steady influx of energy, right? Or when you sleep, because there is a circadian timing to all of this, mm-hmm. is that at a certain point, once you've fallen asleep, your your primary fuel source that's relied upon are comes from fatty acids. And again, like I said, there's a circadian rhythm to the enzymes that make this happen, that you know, the the enzymes in the pathways, the genes that make the proteins that are the enzymes don't work at certain times of day because you're not meant to have, you know, parts of this pathway coming in. So one of the things that the uncoupling proteins do is that as you get cold, the uncoupling proteins change how hydrogen comes through the electron transport chain. And they, they, you cease to make ATP because you're using those hydrogens then to generate heat to survive the cold that's going on, you know, when you're sleeping in a, in a semi-cold room. So where this becomes a problem is that the transporters, the proteins that allow these fatty acids into the mitochondria to to then become the hydrogen that makes the heat. When, so when you raise insulin, you raise muscle malonyl-CoA. When muscle, muscle malonyl-CoA is raised, carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, which is the enzyme that gets fatty acids into the mitochondria to be utilized, right? Because there's, so there's some studies that show you can get carbohydrates into the muscle, but that doesn't show you then that you get it from the muscle into the muscle mitochondria. Because we know right, there's different aspects to this. So when insulin's up, muscle malocoA is up, muscle malocoA is up. And if you look at these, these fuel sources, when insulin is up, that inherently means to the system that carbohydrates are the fuel source, right? Insulin's primary job is actually to inhibit lipolysis or the utilization of fat mm. so that everything knows we're working off carbohydrates right now, right? So when I have those carbs at dinner, the after effects, you know, a couple of hours, four to five hours later, even of that carbohydrate feeding at dinner is essentially telling your body not to burn fat, you know, for warmth or to survive. We're going to chew up carbohydrates for instant energy for which none is needed. So you don't utilize it properly. Right. And then the, so the system's not working. And then are the carbohydrates going to trigger fat storage, which is essentially what they do. And as they're triggering fat storage, they stay in the blood because they're not getting utilized. And then you have elevated blood glucose, you have elevated insulin, usually chronically. Interesting. So yeah, no carbs before bed, (laughs) not ideal. (laughs) Essentially what it's going to do is stop you from burning fat when you're sleeping, which is what we're supposed to be doing, right? And we're supposed to be doing these things called autophagy, apoptosis. We want leptin docking to the hypothalamus when we sleep and carbohydrates and elevated insulin are going to kind of stop all of those processes from happening. So we're going to age quicker. We're going to have a more difficult time regulating our weight, regulating our hormones. All of those things are going to be problematic. So yeah, a lot of people will say have to have them to sleep. And I'm like, "Mm, maybe we should kind of rethink that. (laughs) Yeah, If if you, uh, what I try to tell people is if you have to have those to fall asleep, there's something else wrong. It's not mm-hmm. tryptophan and serotonin. Mm-hmm. There's some other aspect. Yeah. yeah. Cruz right. says it's because you're blue light toxic. So, I mean, I definitely think that can play a part in <laughs> inability to fall asleep. You know, yeah. if you're staring at a screen with overhead lights on, you know, if you're checking social media, like dopamine, for example, and you can't have dopamine and melatonin at the same time, they're opposing signals, right? So if you're, 
you know, if you're checking your Instagram for likes or, you know, having a battle with a keyboard warrior at 10 PM on, on social media, that is, that is an opposing response to the aid in sleeping that melatonin can bring on. So there's a lot of different signals. You can't have insulin and melatonin in the pancreas at the same time. Those are opposing signals. So if insulin is up, melatonin is down. Interesting. I'm going to have to post about this. This is going to, this is going to ruffle some feathers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to kind of close out just by talking about quantum rest and recovery. And we do have a whole section about red light therapy, cold therapy, and sauna. But one of the biggest things, and we talked about red light therapy in our last episode, which I'll link in the description of this video or podcast, whichever you're listening on, but cold therapy is just one of those things that is so super popular right now. And I think a lot of people are kind of doing it wrong when it comes to using it around exercise. So maybe we can touch on that a little bit. Yeah. So when you look at doing cold stuff, you can put it into one of, of two categories now in terms of athletics. Is that am I am I doing this to alter my biology, which is cold thermogenesis, or am I doing this for some sort of performance benefit? So one of the things that we know is that in, in athletics, ice baths post-training virtually eliminate soreness, which is great. Short term. Short term. You know, so I think one of the specific examples we mentioned in the course is that doing cold water immersion, like let's say you're a, you're a basketball player who has multiple games in a row during the summertime. Sometime when I played basketball, we'd have two or three games a day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, one in the evening, things like that. That is fantastic time for ice baths after a game or, you know, essentially after uh, what would be a workout, because at that point, I'm no longer trying to get the adaptation from the activity. So uh, doing an ice bath post-workout has sort of gotten, you know, mixed up from doing an ice bath post-game or, or even mm-hmm. post-practice, right? Where those things can be super beneficial. Or if you're doing your cold plunge post-weightlifting, you know, the reason that you can put ice on a, a sprained ankle or a sore muscle is that it stops inflammation. That's why it doesn't, that's why it feels better, right? However, what's important to understand is that the inflammation that you're stopping is the primary recovery response to training. So if you're if you're icing and getting rid of delayed onset muscle soreness, you're stopping your body's natural mechanism for for adaptation. So knowing that and and if if we want to do cold plunges prior to training that day is the ideal time to do it because it's not going to inhibit the recovery process from that particular workout. What you do have to be careful with, though, is if you're starting to get some soreness on Tuesday from Monday's workout, and you then do that cold plunge on Tuesday, you have just inhibited your uh-huh. your growth okay. and, and your recovery. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I really like face dunks for cold for people who train. It's because when you dunk the face, so with the ice, if I train my quadriceps and only submerge my biceps or my upper body in water. I'm not going to get the local shutdown of the recovery process or the local soreness, right? If, if I ice my elbow, it's not going to stop my quads from getting sore, right? Mm-hmm. So I can use a face dunk to elicit the biological cold adaptation process and not inhibit the training that I'm doing. I can do that before training. I could probably do that after training and be just fine because it's a, it's a brain response that tells the brain to switch its biology to what's supposed to happen in the wintertime. And one of the sort of the most interesting things that I thought that we covered in all this is that it's also not so much the temperature of the water, but the water pressure that has a huge impact on what water immersion can do beneath the surface. Now, when we're looking at cold plunges and cold adapting, right, chronic exposure to small amounts of cold, that is People say it's a hormetic response and all this other stuff, but that is a, a, a response to a chronic stress that alters how your biology functions. Now, if I do cool water, that water pressure is not cold enough to alter my biology, but that is not going to be cold enough to shut off the inflammatory process. It's actually going to be somewhat stimulatory because it's going to push fluids around and move things around in the body to get them to potentially where they need to be recovered. Now you have to be careful because if it's 
too long or too much, it can, you know, what that water pressure does is it move things to your core because that's where the vital organs are. However, you can, you know, swimming is a very successful form of recovery, provided that you're not, you know, exhausting yourself in the pool or sprinting while you're in there swimming, right? You get in and swim, it, it helps your muscles recover. You can, you're stimulating the movement. And one of the very common like processes that we go through for, for ankle injuries, let's say, is you compress it to sort of isolate inflammatory fluids, and then you put it through motion. And that motion helps the localized lymphatic system pump out the waste products and keep in or pump in the useful inflammatory products that are part of the the healing process. So that's one of the things that you could use a cooler water, not cold, but cooler water post-workout if you had to. But by and large, we, we, we sort of know that cooling the body down before you train dramatically, dramatically enhances your performance. So if you don't like cold water and don't want to use a cold plunge for chronic evolutionary biological adaptations, you know, keep your water between 65 and 80 degrees and you can hop in there for 20 minutes before you go work out and then actually have a really enhanced performance based on that cooler water versus cold water immersion. And then we also know at the same time that hyperthermia post-workout, because you're already warm, those extreme temperatures and and hyperthermia and the heat shock proteins and everything that follows lowers blood pressure, actually enhances recovery from the workout that you just did rather than hampers it because the heat stimulates and facilitates these these processes, right? So if you were going to structure it, cold things before you train, warm things after you train. Got it. Yeah. I like using cold as a pre-workout. I think that can be absolutely so, so, so helpful. You know, this is another thing where cold showers can actually be used properly or or to your advantage. So we know that the cold shower on the skin and on the face is not enough because of the pressurized aspect right? and the, and the mammalian dive reflex that triggers a lot of these biological responses to the pressure that water exerts on the skin and thus beneath the surface. If you take a cold shower, you will get enough of a transient rise in cortisol and noradrenaline, norepinephrine, and dopamine that that can actually be a, a, a way to enhance your exercise. Now, again, I would just do the face dump because then I don't have to get in the shower. Um, yeah. However, you know, we would all say that cold showers do not are not the same as cold thermogenesis, right? Because you're not submerged. It's a very different signal. And if you go dry off your arms and your body afterwards, you just eliminated all the good stuff that you just did. And we should also be very clear because there are people who think this is that the cold shower does not get you that 300% increase in dopamine. No. That being submerged in 30 degree water for an hour gets you. No. It, it does not. There's no doubt that you feel more alert and it gets you something, but it doesn't change your biology the same way that submersion does because of the skin and, and all of those aspects. So that is a it is a way that you can take a cold shower and use it to your advantage. But it, you know, it's important to know what you're doing and, mm-hmm. and how what you're doing is working and to not. One, to not bullshit people and tell them taking this cold shower is going to raise your dopamine by 300%. Right. Yeah, I think the face dunking and the cold showers are pretty benign when it comes to like worrying about how to time those with your exercise and all of that. It's more the cold water immersion. It's more jumping into like an ice bath that's, you know, or even even if you're going to do like 55 degrees or 60 degree water, you still need to kind of pay attention to your workouts, how sore you are, those types of things. And we, we do get into that more in the course, but yeah, I think that clears up some confusion because I get a lot of people, whenever I post about cold therapy, they're like, Oh, I do a cold shower every morning. I'm like, well, that's good. It's a good practice and takes discipline, but it's not going to be the same as actually being immersed in water. Yeah. You know, I I have some of the actors I worked with had some some pretty serious depression depression mm. issues and when he didn't when he was in Atlanta and didn't have access to going out into a lake every day like he does when he's at home cold showers helped him and helped his depression right because when he did it every day probably multiple times a day mm-hmm. so they are useful but again it's important to to understand that a cold shower is not the same as an ice bath and right. a face dunk is not the same as a cold shower and, and right. all these things so you can you can take these tools that you have at your disposal and utilize them you know, much more efficiently than, all right, I, I'm, I've got my cold plunge. I just spent like eight grand on this cold plunge. I'm going to go do my workout and then jump in the cold plunge. No, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's kind of the same thing we, we said earlier, like pick your priority mm-hmm. and use the tools you have at your disposal. So there may be times of year for 12 weeks at a time 
uh, I don't know, maybe summer that you don't do cold plunges and you concentrate on some different types of exercise. Whereas in the winter time, you can do a cold plunge and then follow that with styles of training that can help, you know, be calorie deficit mimetics and a diet that can also be a bit of a calorie deficit mimetic and stimulate AMPK and all these sorts of things where your environment, your cold, your hyperthermia, your training, your actually everything starts to be very symbiotic with one another. And you're, you're not putting in confusing signals, you know, doing a, a bodybuilding workout in December and then having a boatload of carbohydrates and a banana in your protein shake right. after the workout in you know December and January. Right. I love it. Well, I feel like we've covered a lot of topics. We'll probably have to do another podcast because the last time I had so many questions and I know that we'll have more as we, as we go through and, and post this one, but, um, you know, I'm going to post our course in the show notes. So if people are interested in learning more from Rob and I about exercise, we've got a whole full course put together and that'll be down in the show notes for everyone. But if they want, if anyone wanted to find you, follow you, work with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, so it's uh, Robert C. Jacobs on Instagram. And uh, my website is outlawstrength.com. Uh, that's where you can kind of learn how to contact me and, and go about the training aspect. But as far as information goes, that's pretty much all on uh, on Instagram. Cool. All right. Well, we'll have to do this again. Thanks for coming, Rob. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's great. All right. So much great information in that episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Maybe listen to it a couple times. I know I'm going to have to to understand <laughs> some of those things Rob was saying. He's just got so much information. And I love the message that he puts out there for mitochondrial health, for exercise, for building strength, and just for life. Just a great person. So make sure that you're following him. Check him out. And then again, check out our quantum exercise program linked in the show notes for you. If you are ready to get started and want to do your strength training in the smartest, most targeted way possible, this is really a great place to start. And if you get the course within the first four weeks of its release, you will get access to those four live Zoom calls. So make sure that you head on over to the show notes and check that out. A quick little shout out to both my sponsors quickly, Viva Rays, my go-to source for protecting circadian rhythms, code YOGI to save 15% off of those circadian glasses, and then Upgraded Formulas, my go-to source for my mineral balance and just making sure that everything is where it needs to be so that I have the best energy, that I have the best sleep. Your mineral imbalance can absolutely impact those things. So again, code YOGI12 or YOGI to save at Upgraded Formulas. And thank you again for listening to today's episode. I look forward to speaking with you again next week.